0: It's exactly 150 years ago this year the creation of Germany in 1871 and, and so little debate was had about the fact that this made a huge impact on, on Europe and the world obviously in, in lots of uh, negative ways but also lots of positive ways and I think it deserves as many conversations as, as we can have about that.
1: German-British historian and author Katja Hoyer is here to talk about the rise of the German Empire before the First World War and we'll hear from her right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spirit. Welcome back. Today's guest is a German-British historian specializing in modern German history. She was born in East Germany and is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in London, a visiting research fellow at King's College London, and has written for the Washington Post, History Today, and BBC's History Extra. Her book is Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire, 1871 to 1918. It came out yesterday in the States, and author Katja Hoyer joins us now. Katja, welcome to the show.
0: Hello, thank you for having me.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. The book is outstanding, and I I came across an intriguing review that I wanted to share with the audience. Hoyer has written a balanced and hugely accessible introduction to the age when Germany Became Germany, Oliver Moody, The Times of London. Congratulations on that review and, and on the book.
0: Thank you. No, I'm, I've been very pleased to see how well uh, received it was by, by various different people. So I was hoping to start a conversation with it. And I think I hope that that's achieved up by the uh, reviews that I've had and also just by the many, many conversations that I've had about Germany since.
1: Well, then, yes, yes, It's uh, it's certainly making an impact. The Second German Reich began after the Franco-Prussian War. What was that conflict about, and how did Germany emerge from it territorially?
0: Well, there had been conflict between Prussia and France for quite some time, mainly over different territorial issues, so for example, the, the territory of Alsace which is right between what is now Germany and and France um, and contains both German and French speaking people in it. So there there had been conflict over areas like that, but also over various other um, kind of longer standing military conflicts between the two uh, countries. Um, And Otto von Bismarck, the Prussian uh, prime minister saw an opportunity there to try and rally the other German states behind Prussia um, in an attempt to basically um, give Prussia the, the predominant uh, position in, in and amongst the uh, German states and, and make it sort of the leading one and um, so I should say that Germany was not a unified country at this point there were 39 German states um, individually all led by individual leaders uh, kings dukes and so on um, and the German nation-state didn't exist and and provoking conflict between one of the most powerful German states Prussia and a neighboring country which was clearly not german namely france with a different language different culture um bismarck assumed would bring the other german states behind prussia to help it out basically in this conflict and that's exactly what it what it did so what the conflict was really about wasn't so much any particular territorial gain or uh, monetary reasons but it was largely provoked by prussia to try and um speed up the process of german unification and bring the other states Behind it, And Bismarck brings this about in quite a clever sort of cunning way because he assumes that it must be the case that France attacks. If Prussia had attacked, then the other German states would never have rallied to its support, sort of, you know, supporting an, um, an aggressive act of war wouldn't have been something that, say, the Bavarians would have signed up to. But if one of the German states is attacked in turn... It creates this illusion that uh, Germans must sort of rally together and stand against this, this sort of foreign invader, and that's exactly what he does. So what happens is there's a um, a crisis uh, in Spain about succession, um, and it's not entirely clear who the next um, Spanish king will be. And one of the candidates is a German one, um, and and basically the the French want reassurance that they will not have a German leading Spain, because then they're surrounded by two German uh, <laughs> sort of territories, basically, and they were not keen on that. And Bismarck deliberately plays with that idea to the point where it keeps provoking the French. The The Prussian uh, king has absolutely no interest in having one of his own on the Spanish throne because he knows the problems it, it provokes. It's not worth it. Mm. Um, but Bismarck keeps playing with this idea, keeps provoking the French, and eventually um, triggers the, the uh, war declaration by the French which uh, brings about this this unification war between uh, France and, and Prussia.
1: I see, yeah. Uh, Adolf von Bismarck, paint a picture of him as a leader because he was pretty dynamic at this time.
0: Yeah, that's one way of putting it. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he was he was intense, so right from the beginning. Um, so I should say he's originally from a, a Prussian noble family. They're called Junkers, um, a sort of Prussian-landed aristocracy. Mostly from what is now actually Poland um, and that sort of Eastern European territory, which which was part of Prussia um, and initially has no interest really in becoming a politician. So he he fully expects as the second son in the family um, to take on some sort of role on the family's estate uh, and kind of just running the, uh, you know, the rural estate in, in Prussia. Um, but he finds that exceedingly boring um, to the point where he starts sort of drinking and gambling and womanizing to keep himself busy and he 's just bored because he 's an intellectual man, very learned, very dynamic himself, he needs the the uh, conversation and arguments with other intellectuals and so on, and, and finds kind of sitting back in in rural Pomerania with the other junkers quite boring and, and one dimensional. Um, and then a thing happens which brings him into politics. Namely, one of the uh, parliamentarians in the Prussian parliament falls ill. Um, and because he's, like I said, a local nobleman, he gets asked to step in uh, for this person who'd fallen ill, and, and for the first time, experiences. This- parliamentary politics with all the backstabbing and intrigue and coalition making and all of that. And he absolutely loves it. He comes home to his wife in the 1840s and, and it's just gushing about how, how exciting it all is and how he wants to stay in politics. But he's very, very much a hardliner, kind of ultra conservative, uh, very, very possessive and protective about the uh, monarchy. Um, so there's, there's back against the monarchy at this point with parliament wanting more and more rights. Um, And he's hugely protective of of the Prussian kings, um, which is valued by them. And they keep sort of promoting him through the ranks until he ends up as Prussian prime minister in 1862.
1: I see. Yeah. Uh, uh, A very colorful character indeed, that's for sure. Mm. Now, during this time, the, the German national identity emerged during the Second Reich. What characterized that identity?
0: Uh, largely these conflicts that I've just described. So really the only thing that binds these these uh, 30-odd state to get states together at this point is the wars against other nations. So when once Bismarck is, is prime minister of, of Prussia in 1862, he realizes that there are more and more people that are calling for a unified Germany. They want this unified Germany be tied to a constitution. So that takes power away from the monarchs. Um, uh, democracy is on the rise, all of this stuff is happening and Bismarck is realising that he can't protect the the monarchy forever if he doesn't give a little bit and so when this Germany is created on the back of that Franco-Prussian war in 1871 Bismarck gives it a constitution um, with a proper parliament that's universally elected by by all males in the country which is quite... um, Progressive by the standards of the time. So there's no ties anymore to wealth or status or anything else, really, other than, that, other than the fact that it's just male uh, um, a male electorate still. But other than that, it's, it's fairly democratic. Um, but it still has a Kaiser, a, a, an emperor at the top. Um, and but the thing is that all of the other German states that are in Prussia are now somewhat tied to Prussia as a state. So they've kind of joined this club that Prussia set up almost. And so Bismarck tries to give them a, a degree of federalism, similarly to the US, actually, I would say, in the sense that the individual states have quite a lot of rights in Germany as well, um, in that it's a federal construct deliberately. So so that states like Bavaria and, and uh, Baden and Württemberg can retain an element of regional um, identity and... and um, autonomy really that you wouldn't have in states like say france where where things are far more centralized um so germany isn't really about anything at this point other than it being germany against others um and so bismarck is, is stuck in a position where he can't have another war at this point germany is only just formed and the other states in europe are hugely worried about that it's overnight become the largest European states in terms of population, in terms of the size of it, the scale of it and he's got to convince everyone that this is now a peaceful state so he can't go out and start another war against somebody and so what he does is he perpetuates that conflict internally, he picks on socialists he picks on the Catholics um, different uh, regional groups and so on and tries and rallies the rest of Germany against one minority after another basically to try and just keep this conflict idea going, keep everyone together against somebody else um, and that's, I think, Germany's foundation problem is that it hasn't kind of voluntarily come together as a state, but was uh, almost sort of merged together in the, in the fires of war, if you will, and thereby this conflict thing had to be perpetuated.
1: I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, my guest will be retired Air Force Colonel and author, Mark Vlahos, discussing the operations of the 314th Troop Carrier Group in World War II.
2: There's so much written about you know, the 8th Air Force, and the bomber crews, but the, you know, the troop carrier men, you know, who wore this patch, you know, the airborne troop carrier patch and the glider pilots, you know, who dropped the paratroopers and flew aeromedically back in combat resupply missions. Most people, there's not much written about them. So I felt I needed to fill this void in history.
1: That's next time. Thanks for listening to the program. I hope you'll support our guests by clicking on the book purchase link in this episode's description each purchase helps support local bookstores and that's always a good thing well at this time you know kaiser william kaiser wilhelm i'm sorry kaiser william kaiser wilhelm was leading the country and how did he bring the country together or try to bring it together kaiser wilhelm
0: yeah, I mean, by his time. So Bismarck ran the country as prime minister with, with Wilhelm I, who is actually sometimes known as William. So, so you're not you're oh. not far off there with that. Uh, I think it's because he was seen as a sort of gentler and, and kinder, almost a Kaiser than you know his grandson, Wilhelm II later. So people like to anglicize his name, I think. Um, but yeah, so they run the country together for 20 years, uh, nigh on. So from, from 1871 to 1890. That's 1888, and then he dies, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, the first. That is, and then very briefly, for in 1888, you get his son, so Kaiser Wilhelm the first son, uh, who's Frederick the third in power, but he has throat cancer, um, so bad already that he can't speak throughout his very short reign. So it's already quite quite bad, and that's one of the great ifs what would have happened with Germany really, because he was very liberal. Um, He was married to Vicky, who was Queen Victoria, so uh, England's queen's daughter's um, husband. So they were basically married, and and Vicky had brought this element of of English progressivism and and liberalism to Germany and, and had this idea of of reforming Germany and making it more like England in the 19th century. And and that might well have led to a more liberal Germany, basically, in the end. But as I say, Frederick III only stayed on the throne for a short time, 99 days, um, and then he died and his son, Willem II, uh, takes over. And, and this young, brash Kaiser, he's not even 30 at this point, Um, is very, very conservative, very out there, certainly looks towards his grandfather rather than his father for guidance on how to run a country. Um, Bismarck's also still there for another two years as as, as, uh, prime minister or as chancellor. And he... um, Initially, has this idea that he's going to run the country basically together with this young new Kaiser in a sort of mentally relationship. So the Kaiser would, would be the Kaiser, but Bismarck's really calling the shots and telling him what to do. Yeah. But I think he underestimated the force of personality a little bit that, that Willem had. Um, and they the two of them fell out very, very quickly over a lot of things not least what to do with the with the pesky socialists that are annoying both of them, but, but Willem is of the opinion that they need to be appeased and Willem wants to be a Kaiser of the people or or Kaiser of the rabble, a rabble as he calls it himself, um, quoting Frederick the Great. Um whilst Bismarck says, No, I've tried that, it doesn't work, you need to go in there and, and use soldiers and, and crush those uprisings and they fall out over that and eventually Bismarck has to has to resign. And then Willem's got a bit of a problem, he's completely by himself now, so his father and grandfather are both dead. Uh, Bismarck, who'd run the country in his own obscure, peculiar Bismarck way, um, had been made to resign, so he wasn't there anymore to give him any advice. And that basically left him in the hands of those at court. And largely that's the militaries, the old aristocracy and people like that who are basically advising him to run the country In a particular way, basically moving backwards again, taking she's trying to take power away from Parliament, but can't really do that because the Constitution is what it is, basically, and stands there with with a democratic Parliament, and that Parliament's containing more and more Democrats now and liberals and socialists and, and, and so on, kind of more left leaning. Uh, individuals to the point where it's half and half before the first world war liberals and, and conservatives and Willem gets more and more frustrated because he wants military reform and he wants the country to be um, um, more respectful of him and he wants more power for himself and he can't push that through this parliament anymore um, and that's why the two begin to clash and so when you're when you're moving towards the uh, outbreak of the first world war in in 1914 you get into a situation where Willem is beginning to think, well, maybe another conflict, like previously with the Franco-Prussian War, is going to bring the Germans back together. Um, and hmm. then they will forget about the fact that they're socialists or liberals or conservatives. Some of them are Catholic, some of them are Protestant. And he's thinking none of that will matter if Germany goes to war against somebody else. That's that's clearly completely different from the Germans. Um, and, and that's why the First World War doesn't seem... As big a danger or as big a threat to him as it actually seems a a, a promise almost or certainly an opportunity to to rail the country back behind him.
1: And Bismarck had a quote, a quote in in 1888 that foreshadowed the First World War. What did he say and what were the circumstances behind Bismarck's quote about impending war?
0: Yeah, so Bismarck said that some uh, some pesky little thing in the Balkans is one day going to bring about um, a great European war. And he said this in 1888, which is quite remarkable, given that that was spot on in yeah, 1914. Yeah,
1: that, that is amazing. It's, um... Yeah.
0: I mean, if you if you put yourself into the context of the time, uh, you can sort of see why he's thinking that. I mean, there's there's the Ottoman Empire still. It's one of the oldest empires still around at the time, and it spans... Basically, all the way from the Middle East into Eastern Europe via Turkey, um, and and the Balkans are part of this old Ottoman Empire, and that's beginning to crumble and has crumbled for quite some time at this point. Um, which means that all of the individual states that that had previously subjugated in itself, um, so states like I don't know Bulgaria, for example, um, Serbia. Uh, you've got all the Middle Eastern nations, so they are now all beginning to to get a little bit of a Of a breath of freedom, they're basically thinking, oh, finally, our our nations can also have individual states. And nationalism was a huge thing in any case in the 19th century. So, nationalism in the actual sense of the word, people wanting to create nation states for for their individual nations. Um, And because they'd been under Ottoman rule for so long, um, these individual nations were now trying to create their own states, basically, in the Balkans and elsewhere. Elsewhere, this works reasonably well, but in the Balkans, the problem is that they, they live in and amongst each other, these different nations and the different peoples with their own languages and so on, so that there isn't like a clear way of kind of just drawing lines in the Balkans and creating these individual states. So there's always conflict uh, and at times, you know, on a genocidal scale where there's literally one group of people trying to decide, right, we're going to create a state here and we don't want these other people here. So, we're you know, we're literally killing them. So this sort of stuff happened a lot, even at the time in the Balkans. um, And Bismarck was constantly looking at that, thinking that there isn't a solution to that. He doesn't really know how that's how that's supposed to end in a peaceful way. And because of where the Balkans are as well, sort of on the uh, in the eastern, southeastern corner of Europe, uh, linking basically states like Russia and Austria to the sea. Those two are permanently fighting over influence in the region as well. Now that the Ottoman Empire is crumbling, and and Bismarck doesn't see a way of reconciling Austrian and and Russian influence in the region, and um, now that the Ottomans aren't there basically anymore to protect it for themselves, and that's beginning to escalate a bit by bit. There's loads of Balkan wars and conflicts going on in the 1870s and 1880s while Bismarck runs the country. He himself actually hosts a conference in Berlin uh, in the 1870s where he gets all the big European states round the table in Berlin and says, look, we've got to sort this out, otherwise we will end up fighting each other over influence in the Balkans. Um, and initially this works, but he knows it's a temporary thing and eventually a war will erupt over it.
1: Did Bismarck take part in World War I at all? Was he still alive? No, he, he was
0: not? dead by then. So he died in, in 1898, uh, a very bitter and angry man. He was quite old by then, so he was born in 1815. Um, so it would have been a remarkable. T- he would have. He would have. He would have been 100, no, 99 years old in in 1914 if he'd survived uh, that long. But no, he lived to a ripe old age. But he died in in 1898, um, a bitter and angry man in his in his bed, still writing bitter and angry articles about uh, politics and how Wilhelm is doing it all wrong and um, how Germany is moving in the wrong direction. So, you know, you would not have been impressed, I don't think, with with the way that things were going 14 years later or 15 years yeah,
1: later. Yeah, yeah. Well, are you working on any new projects now after this book has come out? I've-
0: um. Yes, yeah, so Blood and Iron, this book about this topic, is coming out in the U.S. in December, which I'm quite excited about. Um, so hopefully um, it'll also trigger some um, response there. It's, it's an interesting thing, actually, because there were so many... Um, uh, people that left germany for the u.s in the 19th century in this entire process which we just talked about there's a huge wave and germans become the largest uh, group of immigrants in the u.s so i've already had significant interest from people who know that their ancestors were basically uh, leaving germany in that time and, and people that now live in the u.s and can sort of trace their their roots back to the fact that these things happened in the 19th century and and they uh, sort of great, great, great grandfathers and families basically lived over there, so that's interesting. And then my own family background is I'm from East Germany, so um, I, I sort of was born behind the Iron Curtain, as it as it were. And so my new book is about uh, the the GDR, East Germany. So I'm looking at at the East German state from um, 18 sorry nineteen forty nine to to the fall of the Berlin Wall in in '89 as a as a history of East Germany of, of the GDR. Oh.
1: That'll be fascinating. I, I had an opportunity back in 1996, early 1996, to go to uh, Berlin, and we crossed over into East Germany. and it, And I remember it distinctly, uh, going under the under the Brandenburg Gate on a bus. And when we crossed under it, everyone raised their hands and cheered that we were now in East Germany and that we could go into East Germany. Mm. But,
0: and through the Brandenburg Gate as well, because the wall was literally right behind it and, and the, you just couldn't go through it for so long. Uh, when previously it was, you know, kind of originally it was the gate to the city and it, it was quite a symbolic thing that that was closed. You know, that the gate to Berlin was basically closed, even though it's now right in the center of it. But um, yeah, very symbolic place.
1: I'm sure it's changed since 96 when I was there, but the, uh, the it was fascinating because the whole atmosphere of that side of Berlin was totally different than, you know, West Berlin. Most people don't really realize that. The, the stark contrast between the, those two sides of Berlin was amazing to see at that time.
0: Yeah, and it isn't something that just vanished either. I mean, even even today still, you know, old older places will still have like furniture in it that says people's property on it, you know, because they, they were kind of just sort of, you know, national companies that produced them and, and they're still well, you know, I walk into my grandparents house and it literally looks like it did in the 1970s, <laughs> so it's like a like a museum going in there they still have the same furniture, the same stuff I mean, I still have like East German cutlery and all that in my drawers here in the UK where I live now, because I just took my you know, my stuff over when I moved here This it, it doesn't, history doesn't just end at, at points where we decide it should end. It sort of always trickles and, and leaks into periods that
1: follow. Yeah, yeah, it's just an amazing place though. The book is called Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire, 1871 to 1918, and I highly recommend it. Katja, thank you so much for joining me today. This was fascinating.
0: No, oh, thank you, Robert. No, I really enjoyed that, and I'm I'm always glad to you know talk about Germany because I I do think it's it's underestimated just how much of an impact the creation of Germany had. It's exactly 150 years ago this year, the creation of Germany in 1871, and and so little debate was had about the fact that this made a huge impact on on Europe and the world, obviously in in lots of uh, negative ways, but also lots of positive ways, and I think it deserves as many conversations as as we can have about that.
1: That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, my guest will be retired Air Force Colonel and author, Mark Vlahos, discussing the operations of the 314th Troop Carrier Group in World War II.
2: There's so much written about, you know, the 8th Air Force and the bomber crews, but the, you know, the troop carrier men, you know, who wore this patch, you know, the Airborne Troop Carrier patch and the glider pilots, you know, who dropped the paratroopers and flew aeromedically back in combat resupply missions. Most people, there's not much written about them, so I felt I needed to fill this void in history.
1: That's next time. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. You can find me on Twitter, at Rob Child, where you can share your comments about the show. I'm Robert Child, and this
2: has been Point of the Spirit. Music licensed from Audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.
1: I wanted to take a moment to thank our growing army of listener supporter members. You make it possible to continue our mission of bringing you the best military history authors, filmmakers, and movers and shakers. If you're not a member yet, it's easy to join, and it takes just seconds. Scroll down to the bottom of this episode's description and click the support link you'll come to our Anchor page, click the support button, complete the brief form. It's that easy. We're planning loyalty perks and giveaways to roll out over the coming months for our early supporters who sign on before the end of the year. So don't wait, become a member today, and thank you for your support.